Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 460th show of ROI. Our guest for today is Hannibal Johnson, author and consultant specializing in diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. And we're going to be talking about Black Wall Street 100, an American city grapples with its historical racial trauma. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. And our producer and engineer, as always, is Dave Baker. To begin with, welcome to the show, Hannibal. Hey, it's great to be here. We are very excited. Um, so our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and we really are just wanting to provide a little bit of background to today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on what Tulsa, Oklahoma in general is like in the early 20th century and the Greenwood District in particular? Tulsa at the beginning of the 20th century was a, a sort of a boom town because of the discovery of oil in and around Tulsa. Tulsa would go on to become, in the subsequent decades, the oil capital of the world. Tulsa was a segregated city, and the black community, which was adjacent to downtown Tulsa, separated only by the Frisco tracks, was a bustling business and entrepreneurial community. It was called Black Wall Street as a nod to the commercial character in that community. There were barbershops and beauty salons, movie theaters, dance halls, pool halls, grocery stores, restaurants, hotels, also a number of professionals, doctors, lawyers, accountants, dentists. And the community was renowned throughout the nation because of that bustling economy and because of the entrepreneurship that was characteristic of the community. Okay, so so things go along really well. Then the the wheels kind of fall off in the 1920s. Can you kind of tell us what was going on in Tulsa that kind of led to that and then, you know, that event, um, which really creates the trauma that you're using at least as a starting point? So many of your listeners are undoubtedly familiar with, um, at least in part, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre, the disaster that befell the Greenland community on May 31st and June 1st, 1921. It's important to to put that in context, though, in in a national context. The national context is one in which racial violence was rampant. In 1919, just two years before the massacre in Tulsa, there were more than two dozen so-called race riots throughout the United States in places like New York and Philadelphia and Baltimore and Memphis, Omaha, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Longview, Texas, and Lane, Arkansas. And during this period, there was also... um, the phenomenon that I refer to as, as a form of domestic terrorism, we, we commonly know it as lynching. These were incidents in which black folks were targeted, and the individuals targeted were really not the point. The point was rather to stoke fear in the hearts and minds of black people generally. And so that's the national context of, of racial trauma and racial violence in which the massacre occurs in 1921. And in Tulsa, there were a couple of particular factors that are worth noting. One is what I call landlust. The, the Greenwood community, the black community, sat on land that was desired by railroad interests and other corporate interests. Therefore, there was a push really to move the black community farther north and to take that land for higher and better purposes. There was also uh, 
really a psychological phenomenon occurring, not just in Tulsa, but really all over the nation. Uh, cognitive dissonance that, that is really highlighted in Tulsa because of the prominence and the, and the relative wealth of the black community. If you are a white person and you believe in the prominent ideology of the time, white supremacy, and you see this up-and-coming black community in which there are millionaires and people you know, driving cars and owning homes, it causes cognitive dissonance. Uh, it's, a, it's a misalignment between what you believe ought to be true and what is true in terms of the racial pecking order. So that, coupled with um, the media, the, the rise of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, the iconic domestic terrorist organization, all these factors really led to the conditions that fomented hostility in the white community against the black community, and thus the outbreak in 1921 in Tulsa. Okay, so we only have about two minutes left for this segment, so I would like you to kind of walk us, to kind of walk us through what happened uh, with the riot. So the massacre, again, occurred on May 31st, June 1st. It was really triggered by an elevator incident that involved two teenagers, a black boy and a white girl. Something happened on the elevator that caused the girl to panic. She became distraught, overreacted. Police were called. The boy was arrested. Large white mob gathered. And ultimately, that white mob, many of them deputized by local law enforcement, invaded the black community looting, burning, shooting, bombs were dropped in the Greenwood community. Somewhere between 100 and 300 people were killed. Hundreds more were injured. At least 1,250 homes in the black community were destroyed, as were a number of commercial and other structures. Um, the Red Cross provided the relief effort and the property damage, conservatively estimated at the time, was $1.5 to $2 million, which would be in the double-digit millions of dollars today. And that, in a nutshell, is the calamity that befell Tulsa in 1921. All right. Well, we obviously have a lot more to talk about. So please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the segment, segment, second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Hannibal Johnson, author and consultant specializing in diversity, equality, and inclusion issues. We're talking about Black Wall Street 100 and American City grapples with its historical and racial trauma. Our history buffs are Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. Brett, why don't you start us off? Gladly. Um, can you talk a little bit about the role that World War I uh, played in the economic uh, success of African Americans? Well, World War I certainly played a role in the psychology, uh, uh, particularly of African-American men who had, had served abroad. 
because they soon realized that they were treated better on foreign soil than they were in their own country, that they were denied basic civil and human rights in their own country, the very rights and privileges that they were fighting for for other people on foreign soil. So many black men, after having served in World War I, came back emboldened to fight for their human and civil rights. And the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre is an example of that. There were a number of black veterans who participated, um, and they were determined to prevent this organized lynching in, in their community after having, you know, given witness to their patriotism, sacrificed uh, potentially their lives on foreign soil. Okay, Rick. Yeah, Hannibal, I... Uh, um I've done a little study on the the Tulsa massacre, and I've always wondered, you know, a white girl complaining and then it explodes. Uh, was there a series of events leading up the, the days, the months, uh, or years before this in Tulsa, or was this triggered by by greed and misinformation? Just wondered what. Uh, what led up to where this thing would explode as badly as it did? So context is is key. Um, the, the national context is wholly consistent with the outbreak in Tulsa in 1921. We're in a nation in which in 1919 there were over 24 major so-called race riots throughout the United States. Not just in the South, but all over the United States. New York, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Elaine, Arkansas, Omaha, Nebraska, Longview, Texas. That was, that was, that was the fact. Now, those are the facts on the ground in the early part of the 20th century in America. Also, the number of lynchings were in the double digits throughout the nation during, during this period. Most of the victims of, of lynchings were black. Most of them were black males. And... Lynching, again, is a form of domestic terrorism. The, the point not, was not simply to punish an individual, mostly pre-trial uh, and, and with, without you know, an, an adjudication of guilt. The point was not simply to punish that individual or those individuals, but the greater point was to send a message to the black community about their relative place in society. It was to reinforce white supremacy. So that environment... That, that, that sort of race, institutionally racist environment uh, in a segregated city creates a powder keg or a tinderbox. Something is going to give at some point. And in Tulsa, we happen to have this trigger incident that involved the young black boy, young white girl in an elevator in downtown Tulsa in, in, in broad daylight. But we also have the dynamics that would have been similar in other cities, like a a media which sensationalizes stories and and made the incident between the black boy and the white girl into essentially an attempted rape in broad daylight in a downtown building. And they reported it as such. We have a a KKK chapter that that really uh, feeds on this kind of racial discord that existed in Tulsa at the time. And again, we have landlust. We have a, a black community which sits on a parcel of land that happens to be valuable because it abuts downtown separated only by the Frisco tracks and is desired by corporate and industrial interests. So all these things taken together 
are really fuel for what what comes later, and it's sparked by the elevator incident involving Dick Roll and the black boy and Sarah Page, the white girl. Okay, Hannibal, I want to move sort of to the aftermath. Um, so what happens to the black community after the massacre takes place? Um, and I'm not just thinking in terms of, you know, the next, the days and weeks, but, but over, say, the next decade. Uh, how do things work out? Well, the, the, the overarching narrative here is about what I call the indomitable human spirit. What, what's really important here is, is not that this incident happened. It's how the community reacted to the incident. So immediately after the incident, Mayor T.D. Evans, the City Commission, and the Chamber of Commerce blamed the black community for the massacre. They referred to it as a Negro uprising. One of the local white papers, the Tulsa Tribune, talked about the possibility of rebuilding. In fact, they published an editorial on June 4th, 1921, three days after the massacre, saying such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa. Again, it was a cesspool of iniquity and corruption. The city of Tulsa tried to extend the fire code to make it cost prohibitive to rebuild in the Greenville community and thus make it easier for industrial interest and railroad interest to seize the land. That was fought by B.C. Franklin, the father of legendary historian Dr. John Hope Franklin. B.C. Franklin was a prominent attorney in the Greenwood community. So, so it's, it's that indomitable human spirit that allowed the rebuilding of the community to begin almost immediately. Um, it, it's, it's that indomitable human spirit that uh, really struck a chord with people throughout the nation, like the NAACP in New York City, who sent a contribution, like black churches who collectively contributed to the rebuilding of the community. The National Negro Business League, Booker T. Washington's Black Chamber of Commerce, held its national conference in Tulsa in 1925, just four years after the massacre. That really tells you a little bit about how substantial the rebuilding was and how important Tulsa was in terms of the black psyche uh, during that, that period. The community peaked as a business community in the early to mid-1940s, just a couple of decades after the devastation in 1921. So let's remember the indomitable human spirit that allowed the building of such a remarkable, nationally renowned community and allowed the community to take whatever blows might be forthcoming, but, but still to rise again. Okay, Brett. Can you talk to us a little bit about how uh, this wealth came to be? Is this a incidence where uh, you have whites frequently frequenting black-owned businesses, or is this more um, commerce within the black community in Tulsa? Yeah, the Greenwood community was successful as a business community because it was insular. So I use the metaphor of uh, the economic detour. So you can imagine black folks metaphorically approaching the gate of economic opportunity in downtown Tulsa and being turned away because of segregation. They wind up back in their own community. They build their own businesses to serve their own needs. They trade with one another. Dollars are essentially trapped in the community and they circulate multiple times throughout that community. And even those who work outside the community, let's take a domestic, a, a black woman who works as a domestic in, in, 
in a white home in South Tulsa. She goes to work as a domestic. She brings her dollars back into the Greenwood community. She gets a sandwich. She gets her hair done. She goes to the movie. She goes to a dance hall. The dollars are, are, are within the community. And that is what allowed the community to be successful. The, the, the person who's credited with being the founder of the community is a guy named O.W. Gurley. He already had substantial uh, finances when he moved to Oklahoma in the late 1800s. He was from Arkansas and came to Oklahoma in one of the land runs, land lotteries, found his way to Tulsa in about 1905, bought land, used some of the land for his own businesses and, and sold other parcels of land to African-Americans who were, who were interested. And businesses just sort of proliferated um, after, after, after that point. The other, the other point that I'll make about relative wealth of black people in Oklahoma is our somewhat unique history with the five civilized tribes, the Cherokees, the Muscogee Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Seminole. All those tribes engaged in the practice of chattel slavery. So there were black folks who were enslaved by these five tribes when they were forced out of the southeastern United States in the 1830s and 1840s. There were also black people who were free people living among the tribes. So ultimately, in the late 1800s, Indians who held land in common, they were forced to allot their land in individual parcels. The people who had formerly been enslaved by the tribes and their descendants received land allotments in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And so that land, of course, is an accession to wealth. Um, and so for that reason, some black people in Oklahoma had more access to wealth through land ownership than did other black folks throughout the United States. Rick. Yeah, Hannibal, I, uh, what... Um, what is existing now in this township that was uh, destroyed in 1921? What What is there now? Uh, let me okay. Let me just make one correction. It's, it's not a township. It's 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 more akin to a neighborhood. The Greenwood okay. District is is the historic black community in Tulsa. It was always a part of the city of Tulsa, always. It didn't always get its share of infrastructure and other kinds of um, opportunities that, that a city should provide, but it, but it's always been technically a part of the city of Tulsa. The Greenwood okay. District never went; it never went anywhere. So after the massacre, uh, again, it, it began to rebound almost immediately. Hosted the National Negro Business League in 1925 peaked in the early to mid-1940s with well over 200 black-owned and operated businesses in the community, continued to be strong throughout the 50s and 60s, began to decline in the late 60s, early 70s, for several reasons, a couple of which include integration, which allows dollars that had otherwise been somewhat trapped in the community to flow out and other goods and services to be, um, to be accessible, and then urban renewal, which resulted in the location of an interstate highway, right through the heart of the Greenwood District, the historic black community, which is a phenomenon that is not unique to Tulsa, by the way. Uh, I've talked in places all over the country, and people were really, uh, they really resonated when I talked about the impact of, of urban renewal. So today in the Greenwood community, it's an integrated community. It's a multi-use community, um, entertainment, culture, education, um, the arts, religion, 
you, pretty much you name it, commerce, residential, it's, it's all that. And a lot of the land has changed hands. The, the city, through, through the Tulsa Development Authority, which is a successor to the Urban Renewal Authority, owns a lot of the land. Uh, there's a branch of Oklahoma State University in the Greenwood community, probably the biggest landholder in the community today. There are some black-owned small businesses and shops in the community. My office is in the, in the community. But the whole nature of the community, of course, the nature of the world has changed since the heyday of, of, of the community. It's, it's, not a seg- it's not a segregated black community, but it is a community, to its credit, that still uh, pays homage to its history and the, everybody that I encounter in the community wants people who visit the community to be aware of from whence the community comes. And that, that really is important to me. Greenwood Rising is a history center that we just opened less than a year ago to tell the whole historical narrative arc of the community. It's been really successful and gotten great reviews. Okay, Hannibal, so I want to, your, your book talks about that the title is is in part um, an American city grapples with its historical racial trauma. How has Tulsa come to grips with the idea of what happened um, in the massacre, and and how do you see is is Tulsa a a um, an example of the way that that historical trauma can be dealt with, or are there still areas that need to be worked on, so to speak. Tulsa, Tulsa, like many communities, is a work in progress. Uh, I I would like for us to become an example of, uh, of some of the ways communities can come to grips with their past. First and foremost, it's imperative that communities acknowledge their past. So that's part of what we're doing by building Greenwood Rising. And part of what we did with the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I served as education chair, and we did a documentary, we did public service announcements, we worked with the school system locally and statewide on curriculum to to make sure this history is included in curriculum. We started a summer teacher's institute to teach teachers not just the substantive uh, aspects of the history, but also pedagogy, how to teach it at various levels, and we've had great success. So we've done a number of things that I think are important in the array of things that are possible, but we certainly are not, we're not the authority, and, and we we were not the be-all and end-all when it comes to that big word that we talk about a lot um, called reparations. Um and I think that that concept of reparations is really important for any community dealing with this hard history, dealing with historical racial trauma. Reparations in the broad sense, meaning what do we do to make amends or to right some of the wrongs of the past? And that's a question that communities have to ask themselves and have to figure out what's best for them. Um, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to kind of follow up and we only have, uh, about two minutes left here before I, I have my sort of finishing question. So what kinds of things have been talked about for Tulsa, 
um, in terms of reparations? Because that is a hot button topic in terms of uh, across the country. How does one do this? What kinds of ideas have been floated um, as ways to make amends? So curriculum changes in curriculum, which which is a, a really broad form of reparations because you're when you change curriculum, you're addressing what subsequent generations know about the past, and to the extent that they know know accurately what happened in the past, they're better capable of of, of dealing with it going forward. So curriculum um, changes are are really an important part of, of reparations. Building facilities like we, we've done, like Greenwood Rising, history centers, ways in which people can actually experience the history, think about it, think about how it connects with other histories that they're familiar with and that they've experienced. And fundamentally, in, in Greenwood Rising, in our history center, we leave people with the question of what are you going to do individually to promote racial reconciliation wherever you are? So in other words, get in touch with your own agency, your own capacity to be a change maker. That's really critical. Economic incentives, targeted economic incentives are, are, are really important. One of the things that's been done here, one of our local foundations called the Zaro Foundation created the Zaro, Zaro Commemoration Fund. And uh, this is a fund of we started out with roughly $6 million. I'm on, I'm, I serve on the board. We started out with roughly $6 million, and the idea was we would have roughly a five-year lifespan. And everybody on the board is a person of color, and we award grants in our grant-making process to organizations that are led by or serve people of color. So that that is a really, I think kind of trailblazing effort in the philanthropic community to address the the issue of, of reparations. And that, that could be a model for other philanthropies throughout the country as well. All right, Hannibal, we try to give our guests the last word on the show. We've only got about a minute and a half left. Um, so in a very short way, why do you think that knowing about Tulsa's Greenwood District is relevant in today's world? You know, I'd like to give a nod to Dr. Maya Angelou, who said, our history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, it need not be lived again. The point to me, fundamentally, is that we need to know our past so that we can leverage the salutary positive aspects of it and so that we can avoid the mistakes that we made back then. And that is important in Tulsa. It's important in New Orleans and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Brooklyn and Baltimore. It's important all over the nation. We all share a racial narrative that has not fully been told and certainly has not been fully been, has not fully been addressed. All right. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. 
This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 460th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is Kayla's Theme, written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Hannibal Johnson, author and consultant specializing in diversity, equity, and inclusion issues. We've been talking about his book, Black Wall Street 100, An American City Grapples with Its Historical Racial Trauma. The history buffs for today's show were Rick Sweet and Brett Menard. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotsa Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Mm-hmm.